Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor at SlashFilm.com and the host of the Slash Filmcast. And joining me today, he is the man who played the Garf on the ABC original series Big Day, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I, I am very angry today, David. Why is that, sir? Uh, a spider bit my ass. <laughs> now, I, I, I have a thing on my buttocks now that's like a small golf ball. And a lot of people have criticized me, a lot of you animal rights people have talked about the Dangerous Animals Club and the stories about Buffalo with why I have this thing against spiders. And let me tell you, either they've been listening to the podcast and this is their way of getting back at me, or I have a, I have a big reason to be angry at spiders in my life. So I'm not happy today. But now that you mentioned the Garf, that is the show, if you listen to Afflictions of Love, that I was losing my voice on. That was playing the Garf, and that's the show that the producers were so kind to try to get my speaking parts near the beginning of the day so I wouldn't ah. be mute at the late afternoon time. And, oh, it's a terrible time. Afflictions <laughs> of Love, by the way, episode 28 of the Tobolowski Files, for those of you Thank who are you. interested. Thank you, sir. But, you know, Stephen, speaking of uh, auditions, you know, you auditioned <sighs> recently for uh, Glee, and that got yeah. you a bunch of episodes on Glee, and you re- auditioned for Californication, which has apparently led to a significant recurring role in uh, the next season of Californication, starring David It Duchovny. makes me ill, David. I went into the Californication office yesterday, and they have a picture of me that was taken about when the earth cooled. Uh-huh. This picture of me is so old. I don't know where they got it, but it reminded me that my run on Californication may very well be coming to an end, and I may have to get out into the world and start auditioning again, which is such a pain. Uh, this, I, I have to say that today's show, if I were to do a pie graph of all of the emails I have gotten and of all the questions people ask me at high schools or colleges when I talk or at dinner parties. Last night I was at a dinner party. Almost the number one question people always ask me about ugh, is the, dare I say, the A word, the audition. And that is what today's show's about, because I found that of all the gates that stand before actors, one of the most daunting is the audition. And I imagine it's because it's the grand meeting of everything and nothing. Hopes, dreams, expectations of plenty, running into the wall of the real world with a script and producers and a waiting room of metal folding chairs. It's kind of like the actor's Cape of Magellan. I remember I was in, I think, like fifth grade, and I learned that the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean are actually at different heights. So where, wherever they meet, there's always a stormy collision of equalization. And the Cape of Good Hope is not named that because you're entering a zone of peace. No, no, no. It is a prayer to be uttered so that you can make sure you get to the other side alive. I am asked about auditions all the time. And probably because they seem to be the closest thing to cruel and unusual punishment still permitted under the Constitution. So, how do you get them? How do you succeed at them? And how can you avoid them? Let me take the last question first. You can't. Auditions are a fact of life. 
And this is actually very good news. Knowing that auditions are a certainty gives you the heads up to start the long and torturous process of making them your friend and not your foe. And as a side note, I, I think it's kind of interesting that people who crave spending their life performing hate to perform in an audition. Why? Interesting question. I think usually the answer I get is that on an audition, you are being judged, and that's true. But it's true for every performance art, including baseball. You're always going to be judged on what you do. So the first audition tip you need is to learn how to hedge your bet. And by that, I mean you could eliminate as many things as you can before the audition that would cause you to be judged poorly. Obviously, the way you look, the way you dressed, I'm not talking about those. Here's a simple one. Learn your lines. This has so many positive effects you wouldn't believe it. One, it shows the producers that you can learn your lines. That's a biggie. And two, in a very sneaky psychological way, it shows the producers that you will not be a problem on the set. For the producers, everything is about what they call making the day. That's getting everything shot when you're supposed to shoot it. That means time. Time spent, time saved, time wasted. It may have taken you forever to learn those lines, but the producers don't know that. All they know is, hey, I'm not going to lose a take because this guy knows his words. The strange part is, I've also noticed that if you come in with your lines learned, other non-related Positive qualities are attributed to you by magic. They will also think you are punctual. They will think the costumes will fit you. They'll think that you don't have car trouble, that your house is clean, that you always go to the gym. Don't ask me why this is true, but it is. Another thing you have control over before you go in on an audition is trickier. And that is come in with clarity. For actors, this means you can have a simple but clear interpretation of the part. And the reason I say this is tricky, because often you'll get an audition scene that doesn't make sense. Or worse, it may not even exist. I have two examples. The first happened to me in the late 70s. When I came out to L.A., my agent at that time, the wonderful Kelly Green, who worked part-time selling rain gear at the May Company, told us a play was auditioning that was going straight to Broadway. Here, I had just moved to California, so why not get a job in New York? But then in the back of my head, I remembered Lanny Flaherty at SMU going to New York, turning around and coming back a couple days later, only to get cast in Dallas for a Broadway show a few weeks later. Don't argue with the road. So I ran down with a couple of my friends. We had no idea what the show was. We had not read a script. So we took our little contemporary and classic monologues. We got to the theater. And there were about 50 other men our age waiting nervously. After a couple of hours, they called me in and asked me to stand on stage. I did. I asked if they wanted to see my audition piece. They said, not yet. They asked me to turn around. I did. They whispered to each other. They nodded. Then they mentioned I might be perfect for a part that did not exist yet, but they were currently writing it for the play. My heart started racing. I asked what the part was. They said it didn't have a name yet. Right now, they were just calling it 
masochistic gay man. Note to self, I think it's almost impossible to have good dialogue if your character doesn't have a name, and this rule holds true for big movies. Robert Patrick did not have a name in Terminator 2. He was just Terminator, and he spent most of the movie running. In fact, I'm exhausted thinking about it. But I believe it's all because he didn't have a real name. At the audition, the men asked me if I wanted to take a crack at masochistic gay man. I said, sure. They said they wanted me to improvise a speech. Great. I said, what on? They said, have you ever wanted to have your head shoved into a urinal, then dragged back into a stall beaten and then begged to have sex? I paused while I waited for a consecutive translation in earth speak. Nothing entered my head. Eventually, I apologized and left the stage. The second unusual audition requires a brief backstory, and I'm going to include the backstory because I think it has some good bits of advice in it. When I first arrived in Los Angeles, I took an acting class from Maria Gobetti. I mentioned this in Plan B. Maria was referred to me by Ed K. Martin. If you recall, Ed served as an acting guru dungeon master for my one memorable semester at the University of Illinois. Ed always said that actors should try to stay in acting class if you can, not just to keep sharp for auditions, but for networking. So the first day I arrive in Los Angeles, I call up Maria. I enroll in her 10 a.m. Sunday morning class. I show up bright and early, and at 10.30, a young man entered class and asked Maria if he could make an announcement. They were doing a play in Hollywood that was opening in one week, and they had lost one of their actors. Was anyone interested in jumping in? Well, I raised my hand. The networking worked. Ed was right. By the end of my first day of acting class, I was able to call my parents and my girlfriend and report I had landed the role of Dudley Bostwick in The Time of Your Life, a great, great play written by William Saroyan, and I would open in a week. The play took place in a bar, and I had to make a dramatic phone call from a payphone. Fortunately, the theater had a real payphone on the wall, so they just worked it into the set. So my part was pretty simple. I sat on stage for two hours. I pretended to drink beer. Then I make the dramatic phone call. Then the girl I call comes over, and we go off together. Opening weekend, we were very excited when we heard that there was a real agent and a real casting director in the audience. The play began. I sat. I drank ginger ale for an hour, and then the moment came. I went to the payphone. I put in a quarter, a real quarter, which I had to provide, and I began my speech. About two sentences into the monologue, the payphone fell off of the wall. The audience gasped. I bent over and picked up the entire phone off the floor and cradled it in one arm and picked up the receiver, and I improvised brilliantly. I think I said something like, sorry, darling, the phone just fell on the floor. Can you hear me all right? Good. A moment later, the cord that connected the handpiece fell on the floor, leaving me holding the huge payphone and a completely unattached receiver. At this point, a little girl in the audience said, Mommy, the phone is broke. The audience laughed. 
I continued with my speech, walking around the stage, <laughs> carrying a payphone. When I finally finished the call, <laughs> I handed the huge phone to the man who was playing the bartender, who also improvised brilliantly, saying something like, Here, pal, let me take that phone off your hands. The play ended. Backstage, I got a lot of sympathy, but no prescription drugs to kill the pain. The next day, besides fielding all of the embarrassing phone calls from my family and friends on how the show went, believe it or not, I got a call from the casting director who was in the audience. She thought I handled a difficult situation well and wanted to know if I would come in and read for a part in a movie she was casting. Message to young actors. When you first come to L.A. and you start to despair, remember the X Factor. Hollywood is not like school. There's no syllabus. There are no grades. Out here, you could succeed by complete failure. So this was my first real movie audition. It was for the movie Love Bug 2. I would be reading for the part of Officer Bailey, apparently some sort of policeman. The audition was scheduled for the very next day. I was nervous. Again, phone calls went out to my loved ones. My first week in L.A., I was in a play, and now maybe a movie. I was so excited, I called up long-distance Ed K. Martin for emergency audition advice, and now I'm going to pass on to you what Ed said to me. He said, read the entire script, Stephen. Many actors just read their parts, and they don't take time to read the whole script. If you read the entire piece, you'll get a feel for the overall tone. You get to see what other characters in the script say about you. So I drove over to Paramount. I went into the casting office and said I wanted to read the entire script before the audition. The secretary was not particularly impressed, but he handed me a copy. I took it home and read it. The tone was predictably that of a movie that starred a Volkswagen. I couldn't get a bead on what the other character said about Officer Bailey because I couldn't find Officer Bailey in the script at all. I panicked. I went back the next morning and asked the casting director if I read the right script. She was apologetic, and she said I had read the old version, and she handed me a new script, and my hopes rose once again. Apparently, the writers went back to the drawing board and added Officer Bailey. This is fabulous. I could only imagine the hilarious encounter he would have with Herbie the Love Bug. I, I sat outside the office and read for two hours. There was no Officer Bailey in this version either. My gratitude for getting this audition was diminishing by the second. I went back to the office and politely mentioned I was still not in the script. The casting director was confused and even more apologetic. She made a phone call and got the answer. Officer Bailey was in the third rewrite, a new scene that was just written. It was faxed over. She handed it to me to look at just before my audition, and believe it or not, there was still no Officer Bailey. Now, masochistic gay man was looking pretty good by comparison. She scanned the material and said that there was a mix-up and the part of Officer Bailey was no longer called Officer Bailey, but the name was changed to Cop Number 2. The blood drained from my head when I realized I had just lost my name. 
I read through the scene and I was stunned. I had one line. Let me be specific. I had one word. One word. I'd spent the better part of 24 hours reading two complete drafts of a flying car movie, all for a scene in which I had one word, and that word was, yeah. The scene in its entirety went something like this. Herbie, the Volkswagen, is driving down the street. Then it takes off and flies over a car that stopped at a traffic light. Cop 1 says to Cop 2, did you see that? Cop 2 says, yeah. This was my first movie audition in Hollywood. So the good news was that I had my part memorized. The director came out of the room and said, well, Stephen... Did you read the scene? I said, yeah. He said, do you want to give it a try? I said, yeah. Here goes. Are you ready? Yeah. He read cop one with me. He said, did you see that? Yeah. Good, Stephen. Good. That was good. You want to give it another shot? I said, yeah. Did you see that? Yeah. Excellent. You got another one in you? I said, yeah. Did you see that? I didn't get the part. Of course, it is a matter of opinion as to whether the part actually existed. But the advice is the same. Make sure you know what the job is before you audition. Knowing what you're doing can often give you clarity And people in show business appreciate any kind of clarity. Once I went in on an audition and they asked me the typical question for an audition, what have you been doing lately? And instead of going through the morass of my recent showbiz history, I told them I was watching my jade tree in my front yard. It was blooming. And that only happens once every 75 years. And it was a real treat, like seeing a shooting star on a camping trip. They were immediately interested, and I got a call back. I think more than interest in jade trees, the clarity I displayed in telling the story conveyed the impression that I was not nervous. That's the biggie, isn't it? Being nervous. The question I get all the time is about the sheer nerve factor of auditioning. Say you have the latest version of the script, and say you've learned your lines and you have a simple, clear approach, You believe in it, but you still get so nervous you can't execute. What do you do? First, you have to understand that the idea that you're walking into a room with people sitting on the other side of a table judging you is what is getting you nervous, right? Not completely. Because once I went to an audition early and I walked into an empty room with a table in it and I got nervous. That's when it dawned on me it was the table itself that was a factor. So to get around being nervous, you need to turn the tables, so to speak. The solution, and this advice works for any profession, anytime you have to go on an interview, you have to sit on their side of the table. Not literally, but figuratively. Don't stand opposite of these people and be judged, but become a collaborator. The one thing you always have in common with the producers or your employers is the project. Make the project the most important thing in the room, 
not you. Then you will sit on their side of the table, and you won't be so nervous. My agent called me up about a film called Memento during one of the many slow periods in the industry. He told me this was a very, very low-budget movie with a young director, no money for actors. The part they wanted me to look at was that of Sammy Jinkus. They told me not to be insulted. It was a part that had no lines. My agent said there was nothing really to audition with, but he could fax me the scene where Sammy is tested for amnesia and had one line. And then I remembered Ed K. Martin's advice, and I said, No, I'll read the whole script. I'm not doing anything anyway. The script from Memento arrived, and it was huge by most screenplay standards. I sat in the bedroom, and I started reading. And I got to a scene early on that seemed to be exactly like the scene I had just read. And I thought this had to be a misprint until I read the scene direction that said that the lighting, the costumes, the camera angle, and the acting should appear to be exactly like in the scene right before it. Then the new scene proceeded, and it proceeded differently. I was amazed. I had no idea what I was reading. I called out to my wife, Annie. And I said, hey, I'm reading a script. It's either very, very good or very, very bad. She laughed downstairs and said, which do you think it is? I said, we shall see. I went back to reading. I got halfway through it and I took a break. I came downstairs. I started pacing. And he said, what's wrong? I said, it's the script. I'm really upset. She said, is it awful? I said, no. It's not. I think it may be the best script I've ever read, and I'm terrified it will suddenly become stupid. Why do they always start a good script and then have them end stupidly? I finished Memento, and I threw it across the room. Anne heard the commotion upstairs, ran up to see what was wrong. She saw the script on the floor, me lying on the bed staring at the ceiling. She picked up the script and said to me, Stupid? I shook my head. Brilliant. Unbelievably brilliant. I called my agent and said, I had to play Sammy Jenkins. He said, well, how are you going to read? There's no scene. I said, I don't care. Just get me in to see Christopher Nolan. So here is an audition tip for actors. And this also cuts across other professions where you have to interview for the job. You have to know the difference between a good script and a good pitch. There is no substitute for a good script. You can play a tiny part in a good script and it will be worth your while. You will get noticed. A good pitch is another animal altogether. It's vapor. It's just a sales job. You can play a huge part in a show that's only a good pitch and it could be the end of your career. Example, around the same time I was reading Memento, I got some scenes to read for the new Michael Richards show. It was a sitcom that got picked up right after the Seinfeld gang called to quits. And my agent said, this thing is going to be huge. This show is 22 on the air, which means for you folks out there who aren't in show business, that the show has already been bought without even waiting to see the pilot. My agent said, hey, it's going to be Kramer as a private eye. Just imagine. That was the sales pitch, not the script. 
the show tried to find itself unsuccessfully. They wrote, they rewrote, they came up with different approaches, new characters. None of them were able to give Michael the platform he needed. I never could get into audition for the Michael Richards show because I was busy working. But my agent was having a fit because he was sure that this show was the closest thing to finding a leprechaun in a pot of gold. But it wasn't. They didn't have the script. It may be oversimplistic to say that if you have a script that's as good as Memento, you'll be guaranteed success because most scripts aren't that good. But it is fair to say if you have a good script, if you have a good story that has structure, you will develop passion. And passion is powerful on an audition. Passion is the closest thing we have to alchemy. It could turn almost anything into gold. Christopher Nolan was one of those people I liked the moment I met him. Soft-spoken, intelligent, there's no phoniness about him. I came into the room, and the first thing he said to me was, why on earth do you want to audition for Sammy Jinkus? The part is tiny. I smiled, and I told him that I thought it was one of the best parts of the movie. Chris laughed and said, how so? Note to Ed K. Martin, here is where reading the entire script worked. I said that the premise of the movie was the mystery of amnesia. It's how the entire movie is structured. In every scene, we wonder about Leonard, the man played by Guy Pierce, the one with all the tattoos, understanding who he is. That's the entire thrust of the story, and he's trying to solve that mystery by understanding me, Sammy Jenkins. Sammy is the key, and the death of Sammy's wife is one of the most horrifying and heartbreaking scenes I've ever read. Chris nodded quietly and said, Very good. So what are you going to read for me? I'm sorry there's not much here. I put the script on the ground and told Chris, Oh, I'm not going to read for you. That wouldn't be helpful at all. But I will tell you this. You may consider a lot of different actors to play Sammy, but I am the only one you will meet that actually had amnesia. That caught Chris's attention. He said, you had amnesia? I said, yes, sir. He said, for real? I said, yeah. I had a kidney stone a few years ago, and they had to do some surgery. And they decided to use an experimental drug on me as an anesthetic. They didn't want to put me to sleep, but this drug gave me amnesia. That way I could still experience the pain, but I would forget about it. Kind of like a bad relationship. And like any general anesthesia, for three or four days after the surgery, it had to work through my system, and the result was I had waves of actual amnesia. And it was very unsettling. I would wake up and find myself in the living room holding an empty glass. And in that moment, I had no idea if I had finished drinking some water and was returning the empty glass to the kitchen or if I was thirsty and was taking the empty glass to the kitchen to fill it with water. Worse, once I woke up standing over the toilet, fly open and junior in my hands. And at that moment, I didn't know if I had to pee or if I had just finished and was ready to go back watching the game. So I waited and then I forgot again and again. Finally, Annie is walking down the hallway. She looks in the bathroom and she told me I finished a long time ago and it was time to zip up. Chris was fascinated with the story of my amnesia. 
And I believe I got the part of Sammy Jenkins very much by turning my audition into a session of collaboration. But again, the secret was I believed in the project and I was less concerned about how I came across in the interview. So this is a brief rundown of the elements I found most important in having successful auditions. Be prepared. Understand the material as well as you can. Even better than the people that are hiring you if possible. Whenever appropriate, become a collaborator and not just another person hungry for a job or worse, hungry for acceptance. According to the dictionary, an audition is when the employer is testing the ability of the applicant to meet the needs of the job and assess how well the individual will take directions and deal with changes. Ooh, deal with changes. That's the hard part no one talks about. Because by definition, changes are not what we expect. In fact, sometimes we never even see them coming. I got an audition with one day's notice for Californication, a comedy on Showtime starring David Duchovny. There was no script to read, just two scenes. I bridled at the idea of not having a clue as to what this character was, and I realized the only weapon I would have was to learn my lines. I got to the casting office the next day, and I saw that every older leading man in town had read for this part. It was the gambler's tell that nobody my age was working. At first, I was overwhelmed by the amount of competition, and then I focused on the men that were actually sitting in the waiting room waiting to go in. I knew them all. None of them remembered me. There was John Getz, Daniel Benzali, and Peter Strauss. At one moment, I was there thinking about my scenes and my lines, and now... I was sideswiped by memories. John Getz. John was at least tangentially involved with the first time I ever got fired. It was 1984. I had auditioned for a show called Maggie Briggs, starring Suzanne Plachette. John was the leading man. I had visited mom and dad in Dallas when my agent called me up and told me I got the part. This was my first recurring role. I would be getting $1,500 a week to play the religion editor for a new staff. Oh, we celebrated when we heard the news. I had only been doing children's theater in the schools with Twelfth Night Repertory Company and had a couple small parts on television until now. This was going to be the first money job I had ever gotten. So I had to leave Dallas, had to get back the next day and start rehearsals. I felt like my dream of being a professional actor had been validated right there in front of my parents' eyes, which is very important. I got back to Maggie Briggs on the day of the network run-through. I rehearsed that morning with the scenes I had auditioned with. Everything went smoothly, 
And then the writers wrote an extra speech for me. And it was very funny in a completely nerdish way. We rehearsed the scene with the new speech once before the network people came in. About 20 or so executives came in to watch a full rehearsal and evaluate where we were at. We started the show from the top. I was in the third scene. Everything was going well until we got to the part where my new speech had been inserted. I opened my mouth to begin my new funny stuff, and John Getz forgot the rewrite. He cut me off mid-sentence and jumped ahead with the old version of the scene. I stood there looking like I had no idea what I was doing and had made a gigantic blunder. Later that day, my agent called me and told me I was fired. I was crushed. The producers called and said they were sorry. It was a network decision. They said that since I was under contract for just this one show, if I wanted to get paid, I could stay on as an extra. They understood that this could be very embarrassing for me, and they would let me out of my contract. I wouldn't get paid, but I wouldn't have to deal with the indignities of facing the rest of the cast and watch someone else play my part. I said, pay me. I'll be an extra. I made my 1500 that week, and John never said a word to me about skipping over my part during the run-through. That was 26 years ago, and now he was sitting across from me in the Californication waiting room. Pacing around the room was Daniel Benzali. Now here, here is a happy story. Daniel was the actor originally cast as the power-mad colonel in Night Visitor in Canada. Yes, episode eight of our podcast. You could go back and check it out. It was Daniel who was cast to play the lunatic who had to steal the alien away from Faith Ford. But Daniel apparently had a fit of good judgment and dropped out of the show. As a plan B, the producers called me. I gladly took the job. I got to meet Faith. I got to hang out at the bar at the Sutton Place Hotel. And most importantly, I was able to invent the alien detector, all because Daniel took a hike. What was particularly funny was that the makeup and the costume departments never got the word, and they still had Daniel's 8x10 on the wall as playing the colonel. And they kept asking me what Stephen Botchko was really like and told me how much they loved me on Murder One. I told them I was a different guy. They looked at his picture and then looked at me. I said, true, we're both bald, but I tried to point out that the name and the face were different. They could not understand what I was saying, that I was, in fact, a different human being than they thought I was. They stared at me as if I was suggesting some sort of X-Files transformation had occurred in the hotel. I told them they'd been working in Vancouver too long. Peter Strauss. Peter Strauss in the waiting room. Now, there is another story altogether. It was one of those episodes that seemed insignificant at the time, but has stayed with me my entire life. I was in Buffalo doing the Miss Firecracker contest, and Beth and I got an invitation to come to New York on one of our days off to see the opening of a play called Einstein and the Polar Bear. The play starred Peter Strauss and was directed by Jay Ranelli, who had previously directed Crimes of the Heart in Northern California. 
We came to the city and visited Jay at his apartment. Besides being a wonderful director, he also played the flute. And he had this little pet bird that flew around freely in the apartment. And when Jay played, in fact, whenever Jay started to put the flute together, the bird went absolutely nuts. He was delighted and would perch on his shoulder and eventually would stand boldly on the end of the instrument. Jay seemed very relaxed. He felt the show was in good shape and ready for opening. He started talking to us about life. He said one of the great advantages of being in your 40s instead of being in your 20s is that you tend to take control of your own space. You don't let people push you around anymore. We went to the play. It was wonderful. I'm not exaggerating when I say the performance was interrupted with applause about two dozen times. Peter Strauss was absolutely heroic playing a J.D. Salinger-like author who had lost his faith in the world. The play ended with a standing ovation that seemed to go on forever. I was so happy for Jay and for the production. Beth and Jay and I went out to eat afterwards with Peter, and Peter was charming and funny. He was telling stories. It was a great night in New York. On the way back to Jay's, an overweight woman in tears came up to me and asked for $33.50, the price of a bus ticket to go to Baltimore to see her boyfriend. I gave it to her. And Peter was laughing at me as to what a patsy I was. And then we got into this incredibly spirited debate as to how she arrived at the exact figure of $33.50. We decided it was the inexactness of her story that gave it validity. The next day, I rushed back to Buffalo to my own inexact performance at the Studio Arena Theater. In the dressing room, putting on makeup before the show, I told Bob about our day in New York. Einstein and the polar bear, the evening with Peter Strauss, Jay Rinelli and the bird sitting on the end of the flute. Bob looked at me hard for a second, then tossed the New York Times he was reading in my direction. He said, it's DOA, bro. They murdered it. I looked at the paper. It was a review from the performance the night before. The play, Jay, Peter Strauss, were all destroyed by the review. There was no mention of laughter, no mention of applause or standing ovation. And I shook my head in disbelief. It made me wonder about Jay's theory of the advantages of being 40 and how you're in control of your own space and you don't get pushed around anymore. In the waiting area, Peter Strauss had just finished his audition and was leaving the room. He was laughing and shook hands with the casting directors. He looked at me, but nothing registered. The casting director smiled pleasantly and said, Stephen, we're ready. I nodded at Peter as he left. I guess he figured I was another rich man, poor man fan, an artifact from decades past. I sat down in the room and one of the ladies asked the standard do you have any questions? I said, the waiting room has gotten so hard. Felicia, the head of casting, smiled sympathetically and said, what, the nerves or the folding chairs? I laughed and said, no, the years. The waiting room has become harder than the audition. I never know who I'm going to see or what it'll stir up, and now I'm carrying three huge memories from my life, like giant rocks on my back, and now I've brought them in here for you.
the ladies leaned forward and said, well, now you have to tell us. And I did. And I told them about the night with Peter and how great he was in a wonderful play and how no one will ever know about it because of one horrible review. That night has haunted me for almost 30 years and that it demonstrated that you can never know. And all the work and effort and passion you have can be for nothing. The ladies became very quiet and sad. And I said, it's all right. We're here. And to tell you the truth, I think the reason is, is because we enjoyed the leap more than landing safely on the other side. I picked up the scene and smiled. So Felicia, shall we jump? That was The X Factor, a series of stories by Stephen Tobolowsky. Uh, Stephen, as we like to do every week, uh, we like to read an email uh, from one of uh, the listeners of the Tobolowsky Files. And here, uh, Jia Yu writes in that the Battleship Pretension podcast named your podcast one of their top five. So I decided to check the Tobolowsky Files out. And it's amazing. I listened to all three episodes that I downloaded straight, and when I returned home, I subscribed and now have just listened to about every episode you have. Thanks a lot for the podcast. It's inspired me to work hard. I was feeling overwhelmed by school because I'm studying in a tough junior college in Singapore and just came off of a long but fantastic basketball season. Basically, I'm totally behind on all my subjects, and I still want to go to USA to study and maybe live there. <laughs> Sorry for word vomiting on my, uh, on my trivial problems. I just wanted to thank you for all the effort and heart you've poured into this podcast. It's interesting to hear about what adventures you've lived through, the problems you've tackled, and all the hilarious anecdotes. Furthermore, I've got a great interest in movies, and it's a trip to have a behind-the-scenes look on how movies are made. The Tobolowsky Files is fantastic for its great content and character. So, uh, and, and certainly, this was an episode where we got a, a lot more insight into uh, one of your classic roles, that of Sammy Jenkins in Memento. I was actually just watching that movie again the other day, and I, uh-huh. you're, you're, you know, you have a pre or opening credit billing in that film. So it's oh, that's cool. very lovely. Yeah. You know, it's. It's amazing. It, I, I realized uh, I was at this dinner party last night, and people were asking me about Sammy and Memento, and, and that movie made a huge impression on people. So I'm, I'm doing another story, too, about actually shooting that film, which was amazing as well. Excellent. Well, Stephen, how can people email you if they'd like to? Well, if they'd like to, I think the best thing to do is write at stephentobolowski at gmail.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y at gmail.com. And I'm also at twitter.com slash Tobolowsky. And I'm at facebook.com slash Stephen. Tobolowsky. And I want to mention, I want to mention, thank you, everybody who's been listening to the podcast and writing those little reviews on uh, iTunes. Yes. Because it really helps in, increase the visibility of the show. And uh, thank you kindly to everybody. 
Indeed, indeed. In case you're interested in more of my work, you can find me at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y, and at slashfilmcast.com. And of course, a big thanks to slashfilm.com, the movie blog that hosts this podcast. Um, so that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of The Tobolowski Files. Thank you guys for tuning in and have a great week. Adios.